I'm Dean Deal. And I'm Steve Hoskins. And you're listening to This is the Good Life, a podcast devoted to deciphering what it means to live as a Christian in this day and age. And not just a Christian, but as philosophers, theologians, and maybe even decent golfers. And a marketing guy. Yeah, used to be a marketing guy. Yeah, so speak for yourself. As two longtime college professors, we share a common goal to bring virtue and character back into the conversation of what it means to be Christian. We'll do this by unpacking the thoughts of both our current culture and prominent philosophers like Aristotle, Kant, Descartes, and a guy called Jesus Christ. You'll find that some pretty old thinkers had some pretty good ideas. So join us for a conversation worth having about life worth living. After all, this is The Good Life. Welcome to This Is The Good Life. In this episode, we take on the great philosophy of be all you can be, live into self-actualization. We talk about great philosophers. We talk about Nietzsche, Maslow's hierarchy, all sorts of highfalutin topics. And eventually, we talk about how this winds its way into modern day commercials. Here's my marketing friend, Dean Deal. You know, it it really is about I want to be the best version of myself. I hear this a lot. We ask, even in our doctoral program, why are I've you noticed you've gotten better as you've gotten older. I have gotten way worse, so, <laughs> especially my back. The best version of me was probably three versions ago. Yeah, this is too much PI, right? Too much. So let's get into the episode. Yes. Welcome to This is the Good Life. All right, so the the topic for today is going to be a difficult one for me because I have to admit, all right, so all the things that we're talking about is alternatives for the good life, understandings of the good life. I think we all wander into them at times. You know, it's like I've got decisions. I'm like, oh, I made that decision based on this, or I made that decision based on this. Probably not the best decision. I've made some decisions recently where I got off alignment of my vision of the good life. But of all of the ones that we're talking about in this this series, today's is the one that I probably am the most tempted towards yeah. at times. And, and it's because if I believed, if I truly was convinced that there was no God, or if there was a God that he was completely or she was completely disinterested, and I threw that she in there yeah, just to see good. how you'd react. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Now, I've been dealing with 18 to 22-year-olds exactly. today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not impressed by that. So if there, if there is no God or if the God that is is not really cared about our day-to-day life, and I ask myself, how would I live? Yeah. And it really comes down to Nietzsche's right, there's sheep and wolves. I, I'm going to probably be a wolf. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, I think that the, the you know, and as we talk about it in this episode, I think that um, just in terms of, of sheerly Nietzsche's argument, of which we have spent so much time on the basics of God is dead, you know, that morality is um, not necessary. If God is dead, then Nietzsche calls himself an amoralist. He's not moral. He's not immoral. He doesn't talk about unmorality. He talks about being an amoralist. And that what life is about is it's this wonderful playground for the creative genius the one who has the real talent to assert themselves and to create a world that is so, and he calls it living in the grand style and and to do it so well, so much, so often that you want to do it again and again because you love doing it. We turn that in, in many ways into the political arguments in the 20th century 
uh, around things like the rise of Hitler or other forms of people who seem to fit that bill. Nietzsche calls this the emergence of the Superman, you know, and the, you got a whole comic. The Ubermensch. The Ubermensch. You know, this is, Which is what I really wanted to call this episode. The Ubermensch. The Ubermensch. <laughs> but I was afraid that it Probably wouldn't. Probably just it, call it two Minches. Yes. But that's a joke that most people won't get. Uh, we're two Nazarene Minches. Uh, we're, we're actually like the little characters in the, uh, in the you know, the two guys up in the Muppet Kingdom. Yes, exactly uh, you right. Know, that's yeah. you and me. Svi. Yeah. Svi Minch. <laughs> yeah, I spent all my time in high school taking German because everybody knows that as the U.S. becomes more diverse, we're all going to need to learn yeah. how to speak German at some point. Yeah. That was a great use of my time. Yeah. Well, but, but I mean, you know, we've done so much with Nietzsche, and it doesn't parody him, but it only sees him from one particular angle. No, that's right. And that, that is the angle of the emergence of the wolf or the dominant personality who exists not just to live in grand style, but to control culture and to you know, do evil things, you know, right. let, let's face it. The Holocaust is an evil thing. Right. And so we posit all of that in ways that give us a certain way of understanding Nietzsche, which is fairly, you know, true, but there are other ways because this whole idea of my moral choices are at best limited. And if I'm, you know, we've talked about in other, you know, what makes you happy. If I am the, what, what classically people who talk about, you know, morality theory would call the esteem the person yes. who lives for their preference, or if I'm duty bound, you know, the deontologist or the person who lives, you know, by the code, uh, you know, we talked about that in one yep. episode, yep. then what Nietzsche says is all of that is just thinly veiled objectivism, right? That's all of that really is just a form of me trying to justify That's it. why I do what I do and, and use that to dominate others. And so let's just face it, Nietzsche says, this world is a contest of wills, and the person with the strongest will will win. And this plays out very differently than the other way of looking at Nietzsche, because this plays out in families, plays out in companies, plays out in universities, you know, where this is just a contest of the wills, and I'm going to will my will by virtue not of my creative ability, but my ability to control others. Right. And in this idea of in our in our episode is titled Be All That You Can Be. Yeah. So probably you see that title, you don't see Nietzsche coming, but there he is. But he's not the only one. No. In fact, um, you know, as an education major, we spent quite a bit of time. Were you an education major? I was music ed. Oh, what? I did not realize that. I thought you were like music. No, music ed. And so I had, back in the day, we had to get a music degree and an education degree. It was a double major. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they talked a lot about Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And here's an interesting thing. Hierarchy of being. Yes. The hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And every version of that that were shown in the textbooks at the top of the pyramid, you know, and the idea is that we our layer of needs are yeah. at the most basic. You know, first you need to make sure you got food, yeah. shelter, the basic necessities this is of the life. Old Greek version of it's, of the universe, and so exactly at, the, at right. the bottom is the most base being, and yeah. you advance and then as you a advance, person. You move up, through, and once these the, are satisfied, the modes of living. That's right. And so as these as this level's met, you begin to aspire to the next level, and, and at the top of that pyramid is a phrase he uses called self actualization. Oh yeah, yeah. It's actually. Here's his definition. The desire to accomplish everything that one can 
to become the most that one can be. Right. And and notice that there's no social context in that. None whatsoever. It, there is no telos or guiding purpose statement. Nope. There's no way of determining which form or uh, as Kierkegaard would have said, which plane, you know, Kierkegaard was uh, trying to be Christian. And instead of using the word veil of life, he used the word planes of life, but which plane of life would be a better form of self-actualization than any other form, but it's up to the individual. And so one is almost uh, what would be considered like a ghost of a person because there is some sense that whatever you choose, be all you can be, and whatever you choose is the right choice. That's this, right. As and, long as you're being and this, the best and this version is, of that. That's right. And this is what makes Maslow, and you know, you, you hate saying this for public consumption, so it's S. Hoskins at Trebekah.edu, but this is what makes Maslow a Nietzschean. And people don't want to hear that. They want to hear that Maslow was a nice therapist. And that's a form uh, of understanding the world that really, really was put to work in a lot of places, not just in your department, but I saw that in Christian counseling classes as I made my way through my own. Uh, I got it in seminary. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, it's about self-actualization. Self-actualization. And here's, here's the interesting thing, Steve. He realized his mistake. Oh. And he went back later. And added a little triangle at the top, uh, of, the at the top of the triangle. So a star on top yeah, of the exactly. Christmas tree, and he called it transcendence. Oh, but guess what? You never see if you look up Maslow's oh. hierarchy and you go pull up the pyramid. Guess which one you get? Yeah, you get the other one. You get the one because I, because you just told me something I didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Very few people do know it because the the folks that had bought into it weren't having it. Yeah. Yeah, they they, they just, weren't having transcendence because he said, ultimately, the path through self-actualization has to lead you right. to something bigger than yourself. Right. Or or some sort of a moral guide. That's right. You know, he tried to go back this, in. Something that makes self-actualization noble. And Nietzsche, that's where Nietzsche is such a, a strong philosophical voice. I think continually. You know, right. I, I don't think we've done any a whole lot to stop that. I think there are ways beyond Nietzsche. Thank God. But I do think this is why we have failed to stop the Nietzschean voice, because Nietzsche says any attempt at the point of self-actualization to say this is this is somehow transcendent or this is right. this is something other than my choice, you know, he says that's a thin veil because all self-actualization is. And Nietzsche says, live it to the full. Enjoy yourself. Want to do it so well you want to do it again. Right. But he and says, why do you need to justify it? There's right. no need to justify there, it's it anybody. Amoral. That's there's right. no need to justify. It. And Nietzsche says that here's what history is. Then history, and and you know, you think about the way Maslow has been used in different fields: uh, education, psychology, counseling, theology. You know, across the board. But there's this this great sense that this is just simply now whatever history your history is is a contest of wills waiting for the victor to emerge. If you've ever seen my favorite uh, TV comedy, Everybody Loves Raymond, that's essentially what that TV show is. Whoever wrote that was writing about life in this Maslow's world, you know, this Nietzschean world where there's this competition of the wills. And we're waiting every episode to see who's going to emerge the victor. 
but you don't want to do it in a way that doesn't show your humility or your nobility or your kindness or, you know, even if it seems like you're being ugly to everyone around you at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, you want to, you, you, there's really a, a heart of gold somewhere underneath this. You know, right. This is kind of like yeah, the golden yeah. rule. You know, it's actually good for everybody when the mother is, is you know, overbearing or says something about the daughter-in-laws or whatever it is, you know, that, that constitutes the episode. But that's kind of the way this sets up social reality. And that's not, that's not healthy. When all social reality is is a contest of wills waiting for a victor to emerge. And this, I think, is where so much of the good life theory that we, we are talking about throughout these episodes, but to get to the right idea of the good life, we've got to have a, a, a different story is the claim than this just, than our lives just being a contest. If all it Trevecca is, where you and I love and work, if all Trevecca is is a contest of wills waiting for a victor to emerge, we know how that ends. Yes. If all my family, if all my family time is, is just a contest of, of wills, waiting to see who the victor is that's going to emerge, we're in a really, really rough spot. You know, and you and I have very candid moments. Yeah. I've talked to you about the fact that my own desire, my competitive nature, my desire to excel, my desire to be all I can be, to be the best version of myself, has left some pretty bad wreckage floating behind me in, in my past. And when you look and you see the cost, it's like, hey, I won. Ooh. Ooh what did you win? Ooh, there's yeah. not a, no one left to hand me a trophy because I killed them all. Yeah, because, because, because that's <laughs> what happens in oh, this. Oh, wait, just for the record, yeah. I have never actually you killed, killed anyone. anyone. Yeah, no, we're talking not, strictly we, emotionally. No, yeah, we're, we're, yeah we're, <laughs> we're, we're talking about the ways of living that, you know, the, the ways we assert ourselves. That's it. In being myself or being all I can be simply leaves no room for anyone else's creativity or no one else getting the credit. And it creates a social environment that is nothing more than a competition to the end. Right. Out of which a victor must emerge. That's right. And when that becomes, I mean, having a competitive nature is something that has to be faced and and I don't have to do that because I don't have a competitive nature. Anyone who knows me. Exactly. If this, uh, there, if this, there are students, there are students howling with laughter all over the podcast verse right now. You know, yes, going, exactly. I can't right. believe he just said that. That's exactly right. So that that competitive nature has to be looked at and examined. But the desire to excel, yeah, is not necessarily a bad impulse. But you have to define what excellence is. Yeah, and we get right back into this recurring example yeah. that I love so much, which is. The, the symphony orchestra, the playing in the, the midst of a yeah. group of musicians that you didn't choose, you were all brought in, and you're in the middle of a practice. It's just, because yeah. I'm a musician, it's my right. best definition of what a practice is. Yeah, but it's, it's a wonderful example. We're Keep excellent, going with where it. excellence is placed in a context. Yeah. And, my, and in a community. And, and in a community. So that my ability to play well, and I, I've given the illustration before, the first time as a young guy, made the entrance. Really difficult thing, played it well, got the nod of ascent from across the orchestra from somebody I admired, a really well-known professional musician. Yeah. And that type of excellence placed in that context, my excellence had served into a larger excellence. And yeah. to use Maslow's term, I was absorbed in something greater yeah. than myself 
to where my excellence was unleashed into something greater. And when the community exists, and, and here let's use a big word, but I think we can help everybody sort of get there. When that excellence exists within a multivalent universe, when your excellence as a trumpet player is which was which, years ago, which, which was years ago. Okay, yeah, we were all much better. Yeah, you yes, remember I played piano poorly in the jazz band once, yeah. but as G.K. Chesterton often said, anything worth doing is worth, worth doing, doing poorly. poorly. And it. I played the piano poorly, um, you know, uh, in the jazz band. But you start thinking about this. Okay, so when you are playing your part in that symphony, you represent the trumpeters. That's right. But you also are playing with other musicians, and you're also playing a particular piece of music that quite often was written within a particular context that evokes memory. It, it, it evokes identity. Uh, you know, so much of, of what I loved about passing on my love of classical music to my daughter has been saying, now this piece was written here. That was taught me by the people at the Shenandoah Conservatory in Winchester, Virginia, which when I was there was a hundred of the greatest musicians no one ever heard of. Right. They were the people who would go on to have nameless careers playing on every. Now it's famous. Right. Uh, it had the first Broadway major in America. And a guy named Hal Prince, who was friends with Stephen Sondheim, came and spent six months a year in our little community. And he came to our schools and he taught us how to read music and how mm. to appreciate music. But you are being a trumpeter in relation to that piece of music. You're also a trumpeter with your orchestra in relation to your audience. Those are four veils of existence. No question about it. And, yeah. and when you recognize that, and you recognize, oh, I'm a part of a community, that we have a standard of excellence that is not just me performing, but it's me performing with others, me performing with others a piece of music, me performing with others a piece of music that was written for a particular time, but now evokes the strength and power of a narrative. That's right. A memory. You know, This was written to protest something, or this was written to celebrate something. Then all of a sudden you begin to understand, oh, community is this grand context that offers to us not just rules and moral ways of being, it doesn't just give us standards of excellence, but it also gives to us purpose, playing music. For Christians, the worship of a God who has come in a particular person, Jesus of Nazareth, who remains now by the power of the Spirit, whose work, says John, the Gospel of John, is to help us remember everything Jesus said and did so that we too can be a part of that narrative and we can live in that morality. This, this particular topic, the be all you can be, the push for excellence, the, the strive yeah. for wills, the desire to win that struggle for wills, I'm so anxious to get past it and get on to the good news. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, but, okay, and I feel like we're both right, doing it. We're right. both just like, but, but, well, let's skip to well, the end. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, but, but you know, there, and there's so much here. This is why somebody like, you know, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue is so instructive because he spends a whole lot of time in After Virtue saying, here's the way morality has, or moral theory, moral thinking, the idea of purposeful or teleological living. Here's the way it's developed or, or un, you know, unfolded really throughout history. And part of where Nietzsche comes from is the failure of modern ethics and Kantian ways of And he of called thinking. it out. And he called it out. And he said, if all this is is based on the idea of, of universal morality or universal reasonable action, 
the idea that everybody everywhere has the same morality regardless of their upbringing, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their class, regardless maybe even of the needs in their place in history. You know, some people are born during days of drought and famine. There's a different morality in days of drought and famine. That's than right. there is in a, you know, and, and, and Kant refused to acknowledge that. And part of what Nietzsche calls him out is saying, what you talk about as nobility is nothing more than just somebody saying, uh, that's my choice for what is most noble. You know, and That's it's right. very subjective. It's not near as objective. So call choice choice. So call choice choice. And Kierkegaard, you know, sort of laughs in the face of the Nietzscheans by saying, well, certainly some planes of existence are more preferable. You know, there there is uh, there are aesthetics in the world that create beauty, you know, or maybe there's uh, actually duty ethics that actually result in goodness, people doing their duty, and the good life emerges. But nonetheless, he doesn't take us past the point of preference. And right. Nietzsche says, all you all are really talking about, let's be honest, is, is just a way of preference. And this is where I think conversations about the good life and about what it means to be a Christian in the community where we are, in the place where we are, to be story formed by the lives of the people that have made this community what it is, is absolutely just sort of necessary. But I think we have to rehearse that story about the way we got to this place where every person on the underside of this be all you can be is the whole idea that every person is by right a free moral agent. That's and we began another yeah. session with reading the, the Constitution. And that's, you know, and because you can get at different fields of, of ethical and moral theory reading documents that were written uh, in the past. But, you know, there's there's this idea of be all you can be. Underneath that is the idea that everybody has the right to be self-determined. But what emerges, says Nietzsche, and this is, I think, just true, is that in that environment where everybody gets to determine, you know, who they are, what they need to do, what is best, what is good, it's still back to this Nietzschean idea. This is what McIntyre says. You don't have any other options. No, it's, might makes right. Might makes right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th- and I think we have to remind ourselves uh, of that. And uh, we have to admit sometimes that, uh, as my friend Stanley Hauerwas loves to say, Christianity is always a missionary endeavor. We have to, to understand that the world is not naturally inclined to Jesus that the world is born sinful and naturally inclined to pull away from God and to sin, to deny God. And I think that's I think we have to remind ourselves that that's not just sort of a selfish little enterprise of people who want to have the most toys or this. These are these are ways of learning and understanding and thinking that work into things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that can be taught and replicated and applied across disciplines across businesses, across management theories and the way we learn to treat each other, across political theory. They work themselves out in the rules of the workplace or the rules of the communities, the laws of the communities in which we live, or even the way we do church together. It's, it's you know, you were referring to McIntyre. And in uh, After Virtue, one of the things he talks about is the role. He, he has these roles yeah. that people play within society, and he yeah. talks about the bureaucrat. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like an Enneagram for morality. Theory. Exactly right. <laughs> and so the bureaucrat is the one that goes, 
I don't really know what the purpose of all this is, but whatever we're going to do, we're going to do it really well. We're going to do it really, really well. And it's all about efficiency. And, we're going to put a star on top of the tree. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and having worked over 30 years in the corporate world, bureaucracy is live and well. We, we constantly say, all right, so what's your goal for this next year? And like, yeah. well, we really would like to, you know, try to find artists who have an ability to not just make music for the moment. And say, no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'll just tell you what your goal is. You need to give us 12% more than you gave us last year. We don't care about the rest of it. <laughs> we're not worried and about you go transcendence. Say, you, if you can go save the world. We're not worried world, about creative excellence. Yeah. We need 12%. We need 12%. Yeah. Because we're giving ourselves 8% raises and you 4% raises. So... <laughs> we need 12%. <laughs> this is, Actually, of course, DIY. Us, I never worked in the corporate world. Well, as if. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is where we get into the idea of excellence. We've talked before about the danger of making ends means. Yeah. That, that people should never become a means. And we said that was the danger of duty as your as your primary purpose in life is to serve and, to, and the, you let the duty and the rules is you've become less than an end. You've become a means to yeah. somebody else's end. You've been a end. cog in the machine. What's also dangerous, though, is when something that should be a means becomes an end. Yeah. And something like efficiency. See, a lot of my career has been through the efficiency craze, which is now being yeah. debunked yeah. to a large degree. That, that you can, What they've learned is there's a level of efficiency at which if you go past it, you start getting a diminishing return, you become highly inefficient once you become a certain yeah. so efficient. But because efficiency has been an, an end instead of a means, you turn in your 12% and you you did what you were supposed to do. Yeah. That's that was the best. That was excellence. Excellence was defined as not what was the how did you get there? What did you do to get there? What did that music do? To the culture, and did it make the world better? Or to yeah. make it, it was like we asked for twelve percent, you gave us twelve percent. Well done. Yeah. Or you, we asked for twelve, you gave us fifteen. Yeah. Here's a bonus. Yeah. And huge portions of our society, that's it. Mm -hmm. Did we do it better? Whatever. Did I? Did I had this house. What's your goal for this year? I, we want a bigger house. What are your goals in life? Bigger house, boat, vacation home. It's it's like all right, but to, what are you going to do with your your life? I'm going to have a bigger house, a bigger boat. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have more vacation time. We we don't have anything we're aimed at. Yeah, there's no. We're, but we're doing no it with style. Purpose, but we're doing it with style. And, I mean, and this, of course, is is the the really the sort of nightmare. One of the things that makes Nietzsche appealing, okay, is that Nietzsche actually gives examples. All right. So when you read the history of philosophy, you know, and here's Steve being being the nerd that Steve is, uh, you know, I try to, to tell jokes and, and do stuff to make my kids uh, be entertained because really I'm just a school nerd. It's all I've ever known. I literally sit and read books all the time. And, and but but, you know, one of the things that makes Nietzsche entertaining is that Nietzsche actually names names. Yeah. So when he's talking about being an amoralist or living in grand style, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to do it with style. You know, he he uses names like Richard Wagner. And if you know uh, Apocalypse Now, you don't know that you know Wagner. But as they're watching, you know, the, the fields burn underneath them in the middle of this war. Yeah, we don't have to pay copyrights on that one because okay, it's good. public domain. <laughs> See, this is why I've loved being around you, because I know when I've broken the law. Yeah. And I know when I'm safe. So, <laughs> but... 
But, but you know, he names these names. Well, the nightmare is, what if it's not the Picassos? What if it's not the Wagners who win? What if Grand Style is an accountant? Yeah. <laughs> what, what if, what if the, the best you can be is 12% better every year? Yeah. And all of a the sudden, there, there is no great scenario where at the end of your life, there's this gorgeous painting or there's this ongoing piece of music that the world can't get enough of and that they want to see again and again. What if at the end of life, all there is, is efficiency? Have you ever read uh, Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of where we are here. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have time to talk about it. No, it's, no. it's off topic. But yeah. for those of you, if you've never read it, it's it's yeah. worth reading. It, it really is. And and, and then there are those other characters in Tolkien. You know, Tolkien is the one, one, it's just great for so many reasons, but one of the reasons he's great is because he always includes the characters who don't fit all no, no, no. within he, the world. He saves the world. world. Yeah. Through the characters There's, who are too weak, yeah, to save the world, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's the it's, opposite it's of fabulous. Marvel, yeah, it's the opposite. And it's of the, the opposite universe. of the superhero, yeah. you know, because it's I don't know if you guys watch the superhero movies. I'm sure you do because you know hundreds of millions of people watch those, but you notice that apart from the superheroes, the rest of us are all running around screaming, yeah, going save us, save yeah. us, save us, and that's the world. That we end up in, and and it's interesting to me that in this particular culture, the the superhero has emerged as the most popular form of entertainment and storytelling. Oh yeah, and there's everybody's fascinated with the the foundational story, oh, the the yeah. discovery that you have this power and that you could be this this thing. And so basically, what it tells me though, if you look at the the meta narrative, is there's a handful of people that are really great. And everybody else is running around screaming. Yeah. And what I love about Tolkien is he flips that whole idea on its head. Yeah. And says, if you want to save the world, go find a farmer. Yeah. Go find a farmer who's willing to live into the story that we have to go and save the world regardless of what, what it costs us. And we, you know, we actually find meaning in the world by living into the narrative by which a farmer can become a bit of a hero. Yes. You know. And a hero in the same way a trumpet player who doesn't yes. miss his cue right. in the middle a of the orchestra. In a, in a company of heroes or a company of people who... A who band fulfill, of brothers, band dare of brothers, I say. Yeah, who fulfill their roles <laughs> That's it. and enjoy being elves and dwarves and things so much that they're annoying being elves and dwarves. You yeah. know, they're, you know... And, and they're a little more, too dwarfish. Yeah, a little bit too dwarf, or, you know, a little bit too elfish. Yes. Um, but I mean, I think that part of what you know, I'm reminded of is that when we think about be all you can be as a form of the good life, there really is something that is going to emerge, whether it's a superhero idea and, you know, only the few, or whether it is efficiency as a power. That's right. Or an, not, end, as an, an end. end. An end, a power. It's not that, you know, it's as the guiding telos, we're just going to be more efficient. And every year it's going to be another 12%. Give me well, more. Give me more. And if that's, if that's the case, then there is an emptiness there. Because what happens in, as you said, all these people are out here screaming and dying or, you know, everybody you know, looking for help. What happens there is there's no community in the end. No. There's no narrative 
or a way of people finding their place and their moral roles to play, as McIntyre says, in the stories by which we live out the good life. And what's really necessary, okay, is a great community that has a great sense of its purpose, that knows how to tell its story, and then watch that inspire people to live into that story in, even in, interesting emerging contexts. So take a twist. Okay. There is a form of this that I feel like has deeply infiltrated the church that, again, has been a temptation to me. Right. Because when I got past the idea, and I've shared in other episodes, the idea that I grew up with that it's on you, you know, God saves you, he sees you as holy, but now it's on you to to live into that and don't bother God unless you need yeah, help. Just go work hard. Just go try harder, try yeah. harder, try harder. I got through that. Then I get on the other side of it and you start thinking about, well done, good and faithful servant. Boy, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What could I do? What would it take for me to be good enough, not to earn God's favor, but to get the well done. So you have to understand what kind of a student I was. I didn't just have to have an A. Yeah. I had to have the highest A. Yeah, I, I didn't just have to get an A on the presentation. I had to hear this was the best presentation in the history of presentations. <laughs> Very driven for, to, for hearing that. We can analyze it later. Look, I got shot when I was a kid, okay? I've got stuff to work through. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. Understand. Okay, okay so back yeah, off. Okay, I'm backing off. Um, but this idea... And you're talking to somebody who never needed anyone else's approval. Exactly. This is what oh, makes us just great friends. That's right. And what it is, is it's it's now using that desire for approval. All I've done is transferred my needy little desire to hear well done to God. And I'm still trying to perform. Yeah. I am trying to perform for God. And I, I'll tell you, I'll be real transparent. So it's just you and me yeah. and so just 17 and me people. In this little podcast. <laughs> in this little podcast. But... One of my big fears during the time when I was really wrestling with this, this is in my 30s. And at that time, I was wrestling with, you know, do I want to preach? Maybe that would be it. Maybe I should be a preacher. Maybe I could preach. Maybe that would be the thing where I could really show God I'm willing to sacrifice for him and do something that's going to get that well done. And so I've always held back. Now, don't call me. I'm not going to be a preacher. I'm too ambitious. I'm not going to be a missionary. I'm not going to be here was the fear. What if What if you go to God and say, all right, God, you can have me all. You can have all of me. Nothing held back. Take me. Send me to Africa. I won't be, I'll get bit by snakes. <laughs> yeah, I'll but do I'm, anything. I'll do anything. Just send me wherever you go. And God looks at you and says, thank you. No, you're good. Yeah. Stay where you are. Yeah. You don't want me to do something grandiose and, and powerful and, and be the best me and be all I can be. Oh, and just be the best. Just be the best. You don't want to show me off? You don't want to go, you know, when I get to heaven, it's like, all right, hey, just wait here a second. I want to wait till everybody's gathered around. Yeah. Now, you guys all did good, but let me talk about Dean for a minute. (laughs) And I'm telling you, Steve, this, I've seen entire churches and potentially entire movements. Yeah. That what we're going to do is we're going to go save the world for God. Not for God, for God. Yeah, for God. Yeah. Yeah, so so that God doesn't have to worry worry with it, and then then we just want God to list everybody. Look at what they did, and that is a Nietzschean form of life. Yep, that is just very as, veiled. Just it, it's ve- it barely veiled, and it's just as dangerous 
as any sarcastic or secular way of understanding the meaning of life and just as heretical, separating from really the way that God has constructed his creation and given it life, which requires a community and a community willing to play in the symphony together. Yeah. Because in the symphony, the person that gets the credit is the music. That's what I've always loved about symphonies. That's what I love too. Is that yeah. the person who gets the credit at the end of the day, you can write all the liner notes you want. You can say, oh, tonight we've got this person here. We've got this conductor here. But at the end of the day, the person that gets the credit is the music. Yeah, it always cracks me up. The thing that really cracks me up is the famous conductor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I'm like, look, I've been in those orchestras <laughs> yeah. with guest conductors. Yeah. They're just flapping their arms for the most part. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> they're just flapping their arms. And they're doing it with style. Oh, yes, To get back are. to the style. Yeah. But the, the musicians, sometimes they're making great music in spite of what the person up front Ooh. is flapping their arms. Yeah. But the thing I think about now yeah. is what if in my attempt to do something great for God, I missed the opportunity to be obedient to something he wanted me to do? Yeah. That was as simple as love my kids. Yeah. It was as simple as walk across the hall and be nice to somebody that, you know what I mean? These little things that we don't look to see, well, surely God wouldn't be trying to get my attention and ask me to do this. And it's necessary for God's purposes and the, the life of salvation in a community as the person standing on the podium for whatever reason. And what your job is, is to make sure everybody has enough water. Yeah. Or make sure that everybody, you know, is seated in a way where they can do their work. Yeah. Uh, that they understand how important they are. I had an uncle that pastored a church, Nazarene church, for 37 years. Same church. Got a lot of questions. You know, all right. Uh, uh. He said, well, I live in the center of the universe. I'm going, no, you live in Houston County, Tennessee. You live in a county with 7,000 people. You make gypsum board out there, you know. I mean, you know, you know and, and we're grateful yeah, for uh, gypsum board. Yes, we are. But but nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's not exactly, you know, out there on the, the neatest thing you can put on a house. Right. Um, they, my uncle, very strong personality, could have easily taken a lot of credit for a church. He grew a church a thousand percent. Church went from 20 to 200 in this ministry. Not bad. That's not bad. That's not bad. If you can say I pastored a church. That's better than 12%. It's better than 12%. And uh, I heard him at the end of his life, somebody said, um, how's your church done? What makes the church so vital in people's lives? And he says, well, he says 200 people on average show up every Sunday and 119 of them have a specific job. Yeah. They have a role. They have a place. Yeah. They have ministry. They, they have a service. Some of them help old people get out of their cars and get into the place where they can worship the God who has saved them. Some of them are teachers. Some of them make cookies. You know, some of them sing in the choir, but they have a job. And the people whose job it is to be there as a part of the community, people who are part of the community, uh, are aware of how wonderful it is to be a part of this. And they can't wait to get here every Sunday. Yeah. That's interesting to me. That's beautiful. Yeah. My dad did a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. He, he would tell the story. And one of his dreams, for whatever reason, someone had planted this in him. The record from Trevecca. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but my dad, he wanted to share the gospel 
in a community where there were people who had never heard it before. Oh, this wow. became one of his things. Right. It was yeah. one of his oh, that's, that's really interesting. So he, he takes the money, goes with the trip, goes to the Dominican Republic, and he shows up and they say, all right, we're going to be working on a church. It was a work, work mission. Yeah. And we're going to be working on a church. Claude, that was my dad's name, Claude, but we got these huge 20-foot-long wooden beams, and they need to be sanded before we can put them in place. And they gave him a five-inch orbital sander. And so my dad paid all this money, took vacation time, flew to the Dominican Republic. He's standing alone. With a sander. In a large room. With, with 20-foot beams. And, and the, the sander no longer had a plug. They just took the wires and put them together with an extension cord wired and wrapped some tape around it. It's laying in the floor. It's like near water. He's like, I'm going to get electrocuted. But he's, he's standing there and he said, the first day I'm standing there and I realize this is going to take the whole time that I'm here. The whole week. And I'm sanding and I'm going, I'm probably, this is the thought going, I'm probably keeping somebody from a job. They probably would have paid somebody to do this. I'm doing somebody's job. I could be back home. I should have just sent the money. Yep. Sand in the thing. There's people here that haven't heard the gospel yet. Who's going to? I thought I was going to get to share the gospel. I've got sermon notes. I've got notes in my Bible that I was going to. He's sanding. I can sing. He's Look, sanding. I can do this stuff. I can do Turn the, stuff. the lights on. Why? And he's sanding the, the thing. And he said, it took about three days. And he said, I just got lower and lower and lower. And he said, then God started talking to me. Yeah. And he said, why'd you come why are you here? And you know why I'm here. I, I wanted to reach somebody that had never heard, heard about the, Jesus. Do you think I needed you? <laughs> like I was waiting on you yeah. to reach them. This is what you need. Yeah. You need to stand here and sand this beam because I'm building a church. Yeah. And my dad said that something flipped inside him and he began to imagine that beam in the roof of that church. And he said, I imagined a little boy bored during a sermon and my dad had a very good sense of humor, yeah. looking up and going, man, look how well sanded. <laughs> look how well sanded. Oh, Somebody great. cared enough about that beam that to, to sand that beam. so beautifully. To sand it it's well. It's perfectly smooth. I don't see it. It's little circles. Did he do that with a five-inch <laughs> sander? <laughs> but it changed my dad. Yeah. He came back from that trip, a very different person going, I get it. God's not helpless up there needing us to go reach. It's not, uh, I'm not coming back until you guys have reached all the unchurched people. What are you waiting on? Hurry up. I'm waiting on you guys so I can come back. God's not done with us. Yeah. Making us the people that he wants us to be, preparing and, us for his and kingdom. And giving us role, giving us, you know, giving us good work to do. Giving us good work to in do, like purpose, sanding yes, with the, a five-inch orbital sand. In the service of the church he is building. Exactly. And so much of this is about having those experiences that correct our grammar, correct our thinking, but also give us the language That's it. that we need to say, I have a better story than I've just asserted my will and I'm being all I can be. Yeah. I have a better story to tell. That's right. And that's what I think the good life conversations are really all about. This is The Good Life is hosted by Dean Deal and Steve Hoskins. The show is brought to you by the Trevecca Nazarene University Alumni Association. Produced by Wise Company with help from Aaron Fairchild. 
To learn more or to donate to our show's mission, head over to trebecca.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.